0: From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Patricia Murphy. Earlier this week, Asa Hutchinson, the former governor of Arkansas, ended his long shot bid for the Republican presidential nomination.
1: But right now, uh, I'm just uh, stepped aside. Uh, They're gonna have a very healthy contest in New Hampshire and uh, I'll watch just like everybody else.
0: Hutchinson ran on character, conservatism, and his ability to stay calm in a crisis, but he learned in Iowa, there's not much appetite for that in the GOP base. Richardson joins us today.
2: I'm Greg Bluestein. Fonnie Willis has issued a blistering response to allegations she had an improper romantic relationship with Trump's special prosecutor, Nathan Wade. She says Wade's estranged wife is trying to interfere with her prosecution
3: of Trump and his co-conspirators. I'm Tia Mitchell in Washington. Congress has passed and sent to the president a temporary spending measure that keeps the government from shutting down for now.
4: On this vote, the yeas are 314, the nays
3: are 108. I'll tell you why five Georgia House Republicans voted against the measure.
4: I'm Bill Nigget. It's Friday, and so today we'll answer your questions from our listener mailbag and tell you who we think is up and who's down for the week.
0: We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia.
5: Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. Pina Colada.
0: and we have a full house this Friday with Greg Bluestein, Bill Nygut, and Tia Mitchell joining us from Washington. Guys, hello Friday. Happy Friday, guys.
3: Happy Friday. And welcome Happy back. Happy Friday. Yeah. It snowed here yesterday. You've so got to be kidding. I'm staying inside. I haven't even <laughs> looked outside, so I don't know how bad it was. But all the schools were canceled. Congress left early. So I'm just going to stay inside where it's warm.
0: Stay inside and stay cozy, Tia. I have not seen Tia Mitchell since we were both in Iowa, where the temperature was 15 degrees below zero. And that's not the wind chill, Tia. That was like a one big science
3: experiment to me. That was crazy. It has changed my blood. I posted (laughs) on X yesterday that like I was standing outside in D.C. yesterday. And in my mind, I was like, this isn't bad. It doesn't feel that cold because we came from such bitter, below- zero cold that now 30 degrees was downright balmy same you and i are hearty midwesterners see, yes. well that's
4: what, see that's where my chicago pride kicks in i mean we loved surviving through winters where it was 10 below zero in chicago we felt that we were uh, accomplishing something meaningful
2: so. guys we're ready for the politically georgia ski trip Yes, as well as that. And that's going to wrap up
0: our Politically Georgia weather report also. (laughs) Uh, Another person who survived that Iowa uh, week of subzero temperatures was former presidential candidate and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, who is joining the show with us today. Governor, thanks so much for being with us
1: well thank you and and I, I love the perspective you've given me now i know what i accomplished in iowa i proved my heartiness that i survived the winter cold
0: <laughs> proving your heartiness telling the truth it all runs together eventually um well governor you and i had a chance to talk yesterday about your campaign and i let you know that i was really struck by the platform that you were running on. And with your experience, I really did feel like um, at the beginning of this process, you would have gotten a lot further in this race. You ran on character, conservatism, and the ability to stay calm in a crisis. But um, the appetite in Iowa seems different right now.
1: Uh, That's true. Uh, You've got uh, the Republican base that's angry at Washington. That's uh, bought into uh, Donald Trump's uh, grievance uh, message, and uh, they didn't like hearing uh, the hard truth that I presented. Great people in Iowa, and uh, they just not ready to move away from Donald Trump yet. And, you know, as an evangelical, it, it troubles me that uh, 51% of the evangelicals uh, uh, stuck with Donald Trump. And I think it just reflects that Uh, They want to stick with results versus uh, uh, the character uh, issue that uh, I raised uh, with them. So uh, uh, we'll we'll continue this fight in terms of the other candidates in New Hampshire and my big regret is I'm not going to be uh, able to campaign in Georgia. I was looking forward to that.
0: Well, you're always welcome back in Georgia. We know that your wife was born here in Atlanta, so y'all are always welcome to come home anytime you want to. Um, uh, just to set the the table a little bit for our audience, um, not only were you there to kind of tell... Iowa voters the hard truth. You had also um, already called on President Trump to drop out of the race after he was indicted um, for a number of things, but especially for his handling of those secret documents. And you're the only candidate by the end who had also refused to promise a pardon to President Trump. And as a former federal prosecutor, you said that just was not something you were going to do.
1: Particularly during a political campaign, you don't use pardons in order to uh, win votes. And it also undermines our justice system. Uh, You know, I heard Nikki Haley last night and talk about the use of the pardon, but she wanted the justice system to continue to work. Well, the challenge is if if you're a jury, if you're part of the system, and you know a pardon's promised, then uh, that uh, undermines uh, the really system of accountability that we have. Uh, So I felt strongly about that as somebody who's been a federal prosecutor, Uh, But then also what really uh, challenged me and and, uh, I wanted to convey this message that when it comes to character, uh, you don't have someone who's running for president that you want to support that says January 6th was a patriotic act. And that kind of misleading uh, conduct uh, message is really uh, poorly reflective on our democracy, but on the character Uh, of Donald Trump, who's espousing that lie.
4: Governor, this is Bill Nygut. Um, In a number of places, including your message when you dropped out, you talk about the fact that your principled uh, uh, feelings about the Republican Party, your uh, principled stance, you say, did not sell in Iowa. You used uh, Iowa as an example in the interview that Patricia Murphy conducted with you, which is online right now. But here's the larger question. Is has the Republican Party transformed so completely that Donald Trump is now uh, the uh, the face of the party? And will the party ever find a way back to the kind of principles uh, and honesty that you espouse throughout the campaign? has the Republican Party lost?
1: Well, uh, I hope that uh, it will return to its roots, uh, you mentioned the transformation. Clearly, Donald Trump has taken the Republican Party and molded it into his own image, and that transformation is probably halfway there. Uh, the And I hope this election season uh, we pull back from that. Uh, it's critically important that we continue to fight for not just our country and our values, but for the soul of the Republican Party. And uh, Donald Trump is... Uh, put personal ego above the common good and i'm hopeful that uh, as uh, next this year proceeds that uh, people will come back to the realization that uh, the presidency of the united states reflects our national character across the world and the to example to the next generation and uh, that to me is a central issue Uh, Not just the strength of America, but the goodness of America and the presidency uh, needs to reflect that.
3: Governor Hutchinson, it's Tia Mitchell. Thanks again for joining us. I wanted to ask, you decided not to endorse any of the other candidates remaining in the race. Why um, not endorse yet? And what could lead to perhaps a Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley earning your endorsement?
1: Well, uh, first of all, I, I do want an alternative to Donald Trump. Uh, I think uh, this is shaping up to be a battle in New Hampshire between Nikki Haley and Donald Trump, which is what everybody wanted for a long time, which is a one-on-one contest. And so I'm pulling for Nikki uh, in New Hampshire. Uh, I want to wait uh, before I actually make any endorsement and uh you know, Ron DeSantis has pulled back, concentrate on South Carolina. We'll see where this leads. And uh, I want to measure my endorsement and make a decision uh, down the road. I will add just one thing that uh, Nikki gave some such great answers last night on many different issues, but she's got to get this uh, uh, question right about, uh, has America ever been a racist uh, uh, country? And, we all know I grew up in the South. I'm from Arkansas. Uh, but we had the institution of slavery. You cannot, uh, cover over that. You just have to say it. And we are, she's absolutely right on point that we are making progress and, and we move beyond that. And we have a lot of goodness in our country, but you got to say the words, uh, it was a, a terrible repressive institution. And, uh, And and you got to acknowledge that not just that institution of of during the civil war, uh, but also the Jim Crow laws. I mean, we had institutional biases in our country and you can't hide from that. Truth is important. And so I hope that uh, all of our answers get better on that point.
2: Governor, why do you think Republicans have struggled so much to answer that question?
1: I don't know that there is a struggle at all. You know, to me, uh, you're thinking you're, you're trying to read too much into it, you're thinking something's a trap, just give the honest answer, that's always the best. And so, I don't know why, and uh, I don't know that very many people would struggle with answering that question. Uh, to me, it's uh, self evident,
0: Governor. You and I, in our conversation yesterday, we were talking about something that was a high point for you on the trail, and you. Uh, talked about the foreign press. We see lots of reporters from the Netherlands and uh, Germany and France and Japan. And uh, your reaction to that, I thought, was, was really interesting.
1: Well, I was in Homeland Security after nine eleven, and I saw the same response of Europe and Asia and uh, the other countries were pulling for the United States and supporting us. Well, I go to Iowa, and uh, I see the foreign press there, and I had conversations with them. They interviewed me, and it was clear that they are pulling for the United States to get democracy right. Uh, They want us to be successful, Uh, and and the pride that they have in America and wanting it to succeed is inspiring to me, but we should be mindful that, or mindful that, uh, it's not just about uh, this election for us, but it's also a lighthouse for the world. And we've got to really pay attention to this election.
4: Governor, um, you talk about growing up in Arkansas and about the fact that you acknowledge that racism obviously existed in this country. Just very quick note, in 1957, as you well know, the Little Rock Nine Uh, were African-American students who tried to uh, enter Little Rock High School. And one of your predecessors in the governor's office, Orville Favis, uh, um, prevented them from doing so. The uh, president had to step in, uh, Dwight Eisenhower. So you're certainly familiar with uh, the racism that's existed in the past in in the United States. And I just thought that was worth um, mentioning. But I have a... Uh, a a different question, if you don't mind. The Democratic National Committee, when you dropped out, took a really cheap shot (laughs) at you. Um, And very quickly, the White House responded and said, this does not reflect how we feel. We um, honor uh, Asa Hutchinson. He's a good uh, person. Uh, Did you have a personal communication with the president in which he said, I want you to know I don't think That was a correct response from the DNC?
1: Uh, That communication came through the chief of staff, uh, Jeff Sines, which is a cabinet level and expressed uh, the uh, uh, apology on behalf of the president. Uh, But, you know, I just, uh, it wasn't the biggest deal in the world to me. (laughs) In the political arena, you get hit a lot. Uh, obviously it was out of line, but for the White House to call and express uh, an apology, and then the reaction of the uh, public to that, it's like, wow, here's a good moment uh, in politics where uh, both sides can disagree, but uh, they don't demonize each other, and you respect uh, each other as uh, part of uh, uh, our political life uh, in the United States, and and so I appreciated the call and uh, also the response of the public in a bipartisan way that, Hey, we, we don't have to demonize each other. We can't get along. And that's important for our, for our democracy as well.
3: So governor Hutchinson, I just want to know, is there any tea? Like, have you been told off the record where that statement came from? Because the reason why I ask is the staffer whose name was on the statement Her name is Serafina. We know her. She was a staffer on the Warnock campaign. And it seemed, I don't know, but can you give us any background on what people told you? Like who, where did this come from? Do they say she went rogue?
1: And and that's, uh, nobody's explained it. So I don't know the details of it. And it's interesting that the White House has apologized, but the DNC, my knowledge hasn't made a comment, and they haven't retracted the statement. So uh, I don't know where that stands, but I go back to it's not just one individual, whoever was responsible for that, but it's a culture that's developed. And so how are we training our young people in communications and politics? Is it to use that kind of bitterness and sarcasm uh, and disrespect for others, or are we training them? You know, there's a time for that, and there's a time for being gracious. And uh, and so I, I really want both parties to focus on better training, uh, holding people accountable for this. I don't know. Surely uh, no no statement goes out in my campaign without me seeing it. So what level of approval was this uh, statement that the White House had to apologize for? So I hope somebody digs into that.
3: So and kind of along those lines, you talked about, uh, you know, being appreciative that the White House chief of staff actually reached out and that it was a good indication that sometimes on a bipartisan fashion, people kind of do what's right. What are your thoughts about the Biden administration? It seems pretty clear that even though you're not a fan of Donald Trump and some of the other republicans running for president you don't seem to indicate you'd be willing to cross the aisle and support a biden reelection either just what are where do you land on the on your analysis of biden
1: well i mean i disagree with uh, president biden on his border policy uh on his energy policy when he tried to go all green that was an error for our country on his withdrawal from afghanistan that showed weakness And while he's uh, supported Israel and and, uh, Ukraine vigorously, he's moved very slowly uh, in that support and making decisions. So I could go on about uh, policy differences with him. I could cover some areas that I think he's done well on. Uh, But, you know, that's the competitive political environment. And it's fine to have differences on policy. And I want our country to go a different way. I'm more conservative, obviously. And uh, I think we're at a critical juncture. So I'm not going to be supporting President Biden, even though I, I uh, respect him, I respect the office that he holds and and uh, want to conduct myself sticking with the policy disagreements and the importance of that and not getting into uh, silly stuff.
2: We're here with former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, who recently left the presidential race. Governor, I want to ask you a question that's also Georgia specific. Georgia is one of the the 10 states that have not expanded Medicaid. And right now there's a debate underway with Republican leaders signaling for the first time in more than a decade they're open to expanding Medicaid and they want to potentially use Arkansas as the model. What can you say to our listeners and what advice would you have for lawmakers as they they debate potentially taking on what they call the Arkansas-style waiver, the private option here in Georgia?
1: Well, there's a, a number of advantages to it. Uh, and basically, what we did in Arkansas was to take Medicaid expansion dollars, and instead of giving everybody a Medicaid card and putting it on Medicaid, we actually used those that money to buy private insurance for individuals who are working but are poor and are struggling, and we wanted them to have health coverage, but they have private insurance. And what that did was it helped keep our rural hospitals Uh, more healthy economically, financially, uh, expanded health care in our rural areas particularly, but it also helped us to keep the insurance rates down uh, for all our Kansans that are in that uh, commercial insurance pool because all the Medicaid dollars are going to uh, uh, expand the pool of people covered by that, and of course that helps to uh, keep the uh, rates at a more reasonable level. Uh, you know, there are some things you've got to watch. And I would encourage the uh, uh, Georgia General Assembly to have uh, some good experts come over and give you the pros and cons of it. But I'm glad that they are considering that. It's worked well in Arkansas. We fought hard for it. And it's really helped us in terms of health care, but also controlling costs.
0: And, Governor, as you look back at the last year, you've been campaigning um just about full time. We certainly saw you here six months ago. You launched about six months before that. After a very long and successful career in public service, um, it did feel like on the trail you were selling something that Iowa voters just were not buying. When you said, I'm gonna tell you things you need to hear, that can chafe some people. <laughs> Turns out they, yeah. they were not uh, interested in hearing part of that. What is next, do you think, for um, this campaign and uh, would you have done anything differently if you thought you could have done better in in this process? Would you have taken the tack that uh, Nikki Haley and uh, Ron DeSantis have taken?
1: Well, time will tell on that, but uh, I don't have uh, really any regrets about the campaign or the message because it's critical. And uh, whether I pay a short-term price for it or not uh, uh, is probably the case, but. Uh, long term. Uh, the party needs to hear that. Uh, America needs to hear what I had to say, which was a uh, harder truth. And and hopefully uh, that will pay off uh, this year as the votes move into uh, Georgia and uh, Super Tuesday states across the country. So I can't think of very many uh, regrets in terms of, uh, of my message. Tactically, sure, uh, I could have done some things better. And Whenever I look at the results, it always comes back to the candidate. Uh, I've got to sell my message better. And uh, uh, so uh, I'm sure there's some things we could have done better. But I'm proud of what we did uh, and the message that we had. And uh, whether it's in that form or otherwise, uh, uh, I want to continue to talk about uh, the risk ahead and how we need to address them.
0: All right. Well, Governor Asa Hutchinson, former governor of Arkansas, former presidential candidate, now a private citizen for the first time in a long time. Um, Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it.
1: Great to be with you. Thank you so much.
0: All right. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
5: Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com.
0: Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your inbox, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC's politics team. Just go to AJC.com slash newsletters and sign up today. AJC.com slash newsletters. Well, more than a week ago, an attorney for one of the defendants in the Trump election conspiracy case filed a stunning motion, claiming that Willis hired special prosecutor Nathan Wade when she was engaged in a romantic relationship with him. Defense attorneys argued the relationship was reason enough to have the charges against the client dropped and to have Willis and Wade removed from the entire case itself. Now Willis has responded that Nathan Wade's estranged wife was behind those allegations and she accused her of conspiring with defense lawyers to interfere with the Trump case. Um Greg, that is a brief <laughs> overview of a very long week for Fulton County District Attorney Fani Willis and really this anybody involved in this Trump case has really had their worlds turned upside down by this.
2: Yeah, it really has and we're we're getting to see more of the contours of her response. We're still waiting for that more detailed legal response, but we've now heard from Vonnie Willis in uh, you know giving a response over MLK weekend and now this 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 latest legal motion in the divorce case. But really all eyes are now gonna be cast forward to to a February fifteenth evidentiary hearing that Judge McAfee has scheduled. Uh, the day after valentines day to, to discuss these to examine these allegations by mike mike roman one of the 15 co-defendants in the election interference case we're going to i think we're going to hear a lot more Um, Right after Valentine's Day on this one.
0: Yeah. Bill, let's talk a little bit more about the response from Fonnie Willis, because we went for an entire week with no response at all from her or her office, which was very, very unusual in our experience um, with her team. Uh, Typically, we uh, ask a question and it's answered or we ask a question and there is a way to get information um, to really... uh, Get to the heart of of the information we're looking for. That was not the case. And then, in uh, in a succession of responses, D. A. Willis um, went to uh, an A. M. E. church and said that uh, went into lengthy detail about the toll it's taken on her and her family, and uh, that it is a lonely experience to be leading a trial like this, and that she's not a perfect person. She, but she did not address the question. Uh, about whether or not there was a relationship there, and and before people say, does it matter? We're we're going to get to why it, it might matter as I, well.
4: I, so one of the things that's interesting, and and we need to point out here, is that Fannie Willis's motion accusing Nathan Wade's wife of being uh, of attempting uh, to uh, derail her prosecution of Donald Trump has nothing to do with Scott McAfee's court and, uh, and Ashley Merchant, the lawyer who filed uh, all of these accusations for one of the defendants in the conspiracy. This is all about Fannie Willis having been subpoenaed to testify uh, in the Nathan Wade divorce. Um, and I think it's important to make that distinction here. She doesn't want to have to. Who can blame her for not wanting to give a deposition in a divorce case but it's that's what this part of it is about we won't hear a more formal um, uh, response on the larger accusations possibly until it comes to Scott McAfee's court but one other thing that I I read from our colleagues Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman that surprised me a little bit was I just assumed that this must be a terribly contentious divorce between Nathan Wade and his wife but apparently that's not the case Apparently, this has moved along relatively well, and um, so this comes out of nowhere and, and you know, suggests that maybe uh, Fannie Willis has a point here. You know, she's being called to to give the deposition, uh, and she doesn't want to do it. Um, I'm a little puzzled by exactly what the effort is now.
0: Well, if it wasn't contentious before, well, I bet it well is now. I <laughs> think that
4: yes, but also, I it's terrible that we t- get into the public arena with these things. But the other thing that Rankin and Hallerman report is that this thing all started when it was Wade's wife who apparently had an affair. I don't like the I fact know. that we talk about this stuff. Yes, I but was it's not, I was
0: not aware. I was not aware of that detail, um, yeah. Tia. Along with uh, the deeply personal piece of this. There is also the ver- the larger issue of the Trump case itself. And we have seen Republicans here in Georgia and Republicans in Washington, including our own delegation up there, Move to try and take advantage of these accusations, even though there has not been specific proof presented yet. Um, Move to try and uh, undermine the investigation against Donald Trump, distract from the investigation against Donald Trump, and potentially end the investigation against Donald Trump.
3: Yeah, for sure, and I think I want to just pause here to note that, yes, there has been no proof provided by those who've accused Fannie Willis and Attorney Wade of having an inappropriate relationship or having any type of intimate relationship, but there also has not been a flat-out denial from Willis or Wade that they don't have an intimate relationship. Um, and... and kind of with this great area, you do have members of Congress saying this is more proof that the prosecution of former President Trump is politicized. You have had people um, in our delegation say they want investigations. They've called for investigations at the federal level. I think, you know, we've talked a lot about how the Fulton County probe, because it's not a federal case, it's a local case, that it can be somewhat insulated from interference, even if Trump were to get back to the White House. Because if he gets back to the White House, we know that most likely these federal cases are going to be put on ice, you know, new prosecutors might drop the charges. Well, Even if if Trump is president, he can't directly derail the Fulton County investigation. That's true. But I do think he could be further empowered to do things that do uh, impede the investigation. Again, more congressional inquiries, um, federal inquiries, pressure from federal courts and federal officials could have an impact on the case.
2: And I want to point everyone to a column that was written in the AJC just a few days ago by Norm Eisen, Richard Painter, and Joyce Vance, uh, three experts in legal in, in legal ethics and and, and 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 litigation, who say, and I'm quoting them here: "What we do know, even if every allegation is accurate, a big if, there's no impact on the question of the defendant's guilt, and there doesn't seem to be any basis for disqualification under Georgia law." Now, this is their opinion. We've we've seen some other opinions to the contrary. But most of the legal experts we've talked to, Patricia, seem to agree that, yes, the optics of this could be bad. But the, the, the actual threat to the underlying election interference case and the special grand jury probe that preceded it is very minimal.
0: Yes, that is that is certainly their opinion. I've heard from other people, people who champion Fannie Willis, who people who want to see her succeed who are worried that it's not going to be all about the law, all about the letter of the law, worried that this undermines confidence in Fannie Willis's judgment, undermines what uh, what they hope to appear a completely buttoned up, um, impartial uh, presentation of facts, worry, worried that it's, it's going to slow it down, um, and worried that it's just going to give Don- Donald Trump a um, all the, all the ammunition he needs uh, to go after Willis and get some traction. And I have to tell you, when I was in Iowa for the Iowa caucuses, not only did Donald Trump use Fannie Willis and this entire um, situation in his stump speeches, he also um, uh, was really connecting with his audiences over it. And I spoke with a number of voters around the state who repeated back to me, I said, you know, we have a trial going on in Georgia. Did those charges bother you? And they said, no, she hired her boyfriend. You know, that, mm-hmm. again, this is their language, not mine, but this is sinking into voters' opinions and jurors are people. You know, if a jury does sit in this situation, yeah, you know, we just don't know how it's gonna affect this case. I, I,
4: I wanna be really careful. I wanna make an important correction. I attributed to Tamar and Bill the issue about uh, uh, his wife, uh, uh, Miss Wade, wife. having a, a, an affair. It was not in our AJC reporting. It was in the New York Times story. The filing, apparently, that Fannie Willis uh, uh, issued to try to avoid being uh, t- to giving a deposition, uh, according to the New York Times, the filing said that Ms. Wade had acknowledged having an affair with a longtime friend of Mr. Wade's, and that the couple agreed their marriage was irretrievably broken. I only go back to that because I want to be careful about what the source is of that particular uh, uh, story, but it may very well be in the filing, according to The New York Times.
0: Yes, well, we're going to obviously continue to follow the details of this situation and the the effect that it has, um, most importantly, on the Trump case itself. We know, as Greg said, there will be that evidentiary hearing that has been scheduled for February 15th. And we will bring those details to you, um, as well as any of the other details that come out. We certainly do expect more to come. Now, we're going to switch gears quickly, Tia, because as all of this is going on uh, here in Atlanta, uh, news continues elsewhere, of course, including in Washington. And there has been an agreement of sorts, it seems, on keeping the federal government open. First of all, tell us what was at issue. Uh, I think people lose track of government shutdowns at this mm-hmm. point. It seems like there's like one, one every other day in your, backs, in your box of crack, Cracker Jacks, so who knows with, <laughs> where we are right now. And uh, how did this get resolved?
3: Okay, so quickly, the government funding was going to run out tonight for um, some government agencies and then the rest were going to run out of funding in a couple of weeks. So Congress agreed yesterday to another stopgap measure called a continuing resolution. It pushes those shutdown deadlines to March 1st. For some of those agencies and then march 8th for the rest and congress is saying okay this is the last time we do stopgap funding we really have to do long-term appropriation bills by march 1st and march 8th now grain of salt that's what they said the last time they uh, (laughs) did a continuing resolution but again the new deadlines are march 1st and march 8th now about half of republicans in the house voted no That includes five Republicans from Georgia. You have your Marjorie Taylor Greene and your Andrew Clyde who are part of the far right members who said, this should have included border security. We are willing to shut down the government if we don't get new uh, immigration measures passed. Um, We wish that Mike Johnson, the house speaker would have got more cuts. It's about $16 billion of cuts in this new continuing resolution. The hardliner said, we want it more. They're mad that there aren't some of the culture war language they wanted added. So that's why they voted no. Um, Then you have people like uh, Mike Collins and McCormick. They also voted no. They pretty much agree with Clyde and Green on the issues, but they also kind of were the ones that said, we personally don't like it, but we get that Mike Johnson had to cut a deal because he had to keep the government open don't hate the player hate the game So we're a no but we're good with Mike Johnson for now. Then Barry Loudermilk was the fifth no. he generally doesn't support continuing resolutions as a principal. He generally votes no. He was a little bit conflicted on it. I talked to him before he wanted I think he wanted to make sure that at least half of House Republicans, voted yes because house republicans have this internal unofficial rule that you don't bring measures to the floor if at least half of their conference would support it it the government funding vote yesterday it was exactly half one Ooh, member even wow. switched his vote from no to yes to help it reach the half and i think general init- eventually they got a little bit above half but it was touch and go Um, to get that half, but again, they got it so Barry Loudermilk was able to kind of stick to his just principled vote Mm -hmm. against continuing resolution. Tia,
2: is there a threat to Speaker Johnson's gavel? Because it seems like he's doing the exact same thing his predecessor did, which is relying on a bulk of Democratic votes to get him across the finish line on a big budget decision.
3: Yeah, Kevin McCarthy, the first continuing resolution is what led to Kevin McCarthy being kicked out as speaker. Um, now Mike Johnson is having to do the same thing. There are some differences. Kevin McCarthy was disliked for reasons beyond the mm-hmm. continuing resolution, but that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. People don't have the same level of mistrust and anger at Mike Johnson. Again, you have people like Mike Collins and Rich McCormick saying, we don't like this deal, but we don't think he should be kicked out. That being said, Marjorie Taylor Greene has already threatened this week to file motion to vacate papers against Speaker Johnson. But she is saying it's because of the Ukraine funding, which is kind of separate than the temporary government funding. We know that Senate Republicans are working with the White House, working with Democrats to kind of come up with some border security policy Mainly to free up funding for Israel and Ukraine to package it all together, which is initially what House Republicans, the hardliners, said no money for Israel and Ukraine without border security money. But now, some of those hardliners, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, including Andrew Clyde, kind of moved the goalposts and said shut down the government and put border security on the government funding bill. But again, they're in the minority. Others say do border security with Israel and Ukraine. But Marjorie Taylor Greene said this week, if Mike Johnson puts money for Ukraine on the table, period, mm. she will file motion to vacate papers. Now, the la- I know we don't have a lot of time. The House has a two vote majority right now. There are some absences, but if they come back, the absences come back, they get a three vote majority, which means... Just a few people agreeing with Marjorie Taylor Greene. And if Democrats say we're not going to help bail Johnson out, just three Republicans can vote with Democrats and get um, Mike Johnson removed as speaker.
0: Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry, four
3: Republicans, four Republicans at full strength. Here we go again. As the
0: world turns up there in Washington. Okay. well, Tia, we're going to keep an eye on that story. Thank you for bringing us up to speed on it. This is Politically Georgia. From the AJC. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a special offer for Politically Georgia podcast listeners. If you subscribe today, you can get three months of unlimited digital access to the AJC for just 99 cents. That's all of our sports coverage, politics, breaking news, investigations, food and dining, and so much more, plus access to our e-paper and our assortment of newsletters. You can join our community now by going to ajc.com start That's ajc.com slash start. So you always know what's really going on. We at Politically Georgia love hearing from our listeners. So we set up the Politically Georgia call in hotline that you can call anytime, 24 hours a day, and record your questions and comments. We play those questions back right here and answer them every weekday morning, excuse me, every Friday morning uh, during this segment. We've already got our play on music. So the segment has officially started. And Shane, what is in the mailbag this week?
5: Well, let's
2: start off with a call from the Georgia Coast. This is Eleanor, and she asks about President Biden's poll numbers.
3: Explain to me Joe Biden's constant low showing in the polls versus his legislative accomplishments. To me, he's been one of the most effective presidents legislative in the first two years of his presidency than we've had in generations, not to mention his foreign policy pluses. I would think that the Democratic Party would be thrilled uh, with all of that. So I'll leave it with you.
4: I, I, it's a really good question, and we all ask it ourselves over and over again. I, I would argue that it began, the decline, <clears throat> excuse me, with the precipitous withdrawal and the chaos surrounding the withdrawal of Af- troops from Afghanistan, but it continued well beyond that. Um, and I, part of the problem is that the White House. And for that matter, the Biden campaign have simply not come up with a cogent message that penetrates all of the heaps of criticism that Donald Trump and Republicans have uh, put on them. You you see it that way, Greg? Yeah.
2: You know, I have a long, longer story in the AJC today that I think we will run over the weekend in the print edition uh, about uh, the poll numbers kind of deeper into the AJC's poll that showed President Biden with an eight point deficit to former President Donald Trump, and in it I quote two of the party's premier leaders here in Georgia who both say uh, kind of what you're saying, Bill, which is the party needs to do a better job messaging. Um, Nikema Williams, the congresswoman who was on this air a couple weeks ago, a couple days ago, um, said you know Democrats need to do a much better job messaging, and so does Savannah Mayor Van Johnson, who's also been on this air, um, saying essentially the same thing. And there's not just are they two party leaders, but they're two black party leaders. Mm -hmm who also have noticed the same thing that we have seen in the polls which is a significant number of african american voters are saying uh, not that they're going to necessarily go vote for donald trump but they're just not feeling enthusiastic about biden
0: yeah i think democrats also have to stop trying to convince people that it's all in their imaginations like no it's you it's not as bad as you think it is here's why you don't here's why it's better than you think it is if you've tried to buy a house if you've tried to buy a car if you've tried to pay a credit card bill if you have a student loan or you want to go to college or you have a child who wants to go to college interest rates are killing you. And that is, every time you turn around, that is people's reality. And prices, inflation has slowed, but it's not like prices are dropping a yep. whole lot. So, it, the reality, the struggle is real out there, people, and stop telling people that it's not. Um, so, some things are better, some things are not better. I think that's the struggle that people, people are facing. Um, okay, Shane, question number two. And we're going to have Tia take the crack at this question first, because... I didn't bring her in on the last question.
2: Oh, poor Tia. (laughs) (laughs) It's
3: fine. You guys covered everything. Okay.
2: Okay, good, good, good. All right, let's move on to Paul, who has a question about the Buckhead City movement.
1: Ex-Buckhead City CEO Bill White was recently seen at the Capitol talking to key legislators. We know that the lieutenant governor was a supporter of Buckhead City. And my question is... Do you expect to see a Buckhead City referendum on the legislative calendar? Thank you. you.
3: OK, oh, I'm going to pass. Yeah, that's okay. not me either.
0: <laughs> that was not that was not fair because um, T is not covering Buckhead City. Uh, yes, I, I will take that question because I got the tip that Bill White had been spotted. I checked in with Bill and he said, your spies are always right, which is true. Um, however, uh, yes, Bill White has been seen in the Capitol. He does want to continue Buck- to push Buckhead City. Um, I do not expect a real push for Buckhead City, but maybe a tiny one. What do you think, no, uh, I, Greg?
2: I will right here say that I will eat this microphone <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> if Buckhead City <laughs> passes this year.
2: It has uh, absolutely no chance of passing. Not only has Bill White managed to alienate the governor and the Speaker of the House, but somehow he's also managed to alienate Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones's allies and his office as well. So uh, he has moved to Florida. He There's no real concerted push. Now there's no big lobbying effort. The governor won't ever back this idea and neither will top Republican leaders. And frankly, there's part of that is because of Mayor Andre Dickens has done a really good job in rebuilding that relationship that city-state relationship that we've spent so much time talking about over the last couple of years when it was not at the where it is right now, it has been restored, and those relations are much stronger than they were just a few years ago.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Chances are zero. Um, Bill White will be spending some campaign money against some people in the future, though. I would I would uh, not eat, eat my microphone uh, <laughs> with a promise like that. We'll quickly take this third question.
2: Okay, let's uh, talk. Uh, let's hear from Steve in Atlanta asking about Georgia's surplus.
1: On several broadcasts, y'all have mentioned the $16 billion surplus that the state of Georgia has. I was wondering, where did all of that money come from? Because I seem to recall that at the beginning of the first Brian Kemp term as governor, we were in kind of a financial uh, pickle. So I'm wondering where all that money came from, whether it was you know money unspent from COVID or whether uh, the economy has just picked up that much during the last three or four years. Thank you.
0: Tia, you helped cover the COVID money. What do you th- where do you think this uh, surplus is coming
3: from? So, and I think that it's hard to, um, I guess, disconnect, if you will, the fact that the state has a surplus, and the state also has received an influx of dollars during the coronavirus pandemic that helped to boost the state's. Um, you know, coffers and keeps us going on. Now, of course, also now we're talking about a possible recession and the governor wants to keep the reserves, you know, robust in case things kind of take a turn. Um, So I think that the reserves are a little bit of both. But now the question is, what, will the state do with it? Yeah, of course, there's always the tax cuts and always those type of things.
2: Mm-hmm. Steve's right. In 2019, when Governor Kemp took office, there was a, it was a much tighter bu- budget, and there was a big debate about whether or not Georgia could do both, uh, cutting the state income tax rate and uh, raising teacher pay. And of course, that question was answered as the coffers continued to grow. Part of that's through increased tax uh, uh, collections after the coronavirus pandemic, You know we're doing the when the economic high times were coming in and more spending, partly because of federal programs from Donald Trump and from Joe Biden of coronavirus relief funds and others. And part of it's exactly what Tia said, which was uh, as the state was getting all this extra coronavirus infrastructure money and other money, um, it could afford to help juice the economy and it could help afford to spend this money on other issues. And now we've got this big debate about how to spend the $16 billion in reserves that we're going to help start hashing out this session.
0: All right. Well, we always love hearing from our listeners, so be sure to give us a call at 404-526-2527 if you have a question for the show. And guys, we are almost out of time, but we're going to run through our Who's Up and Who's Down for the Week. Tia, let's start with you. Who is your Who's Down for the Week?
3: i'm gonna say my who's down is speaker mike johnson because heavy is the head that wears the crown people are already talking about kicking him out even though he's only been in the job for not even three months i don't think greg
2: mine dovetails with the last question georgians views on the economy of the future are who's down nearly three quarters of registered voters in georgia say they think the u.s is headed down the wrong track while only 15 percent believe the nation is headed in the right direction. And the dismal view is kind of a, across the board, cutting across socioeconomic, racial, uh, uh, partisan lines. A lot of people f- have the same feeling that you mentioned earlier, Patricia, that, that this, this economic downturn is hurting them. Bill,
0: who's your who's down?
4: Um, Atlanta's homeless. Matt, Matt Kempner had a really powerful article on the front page today. The homeless people, more than 2,000 of them apparently in Atlanta alone, are trying to get through this bitter, bitter cold weather. He talks about a woman named Lena Harris and her five children aged one to 10 not really having any place to go to get out of this weather. It's heartbreaking. Um, And we've had mayors going back to Shirley Franklin and before saying we're going to do something about homelessness and we just never seem to get to it.
0: Right. And we want to thank Matt Kipner for that terrific reporting. My who's down are the networks that called the Iowa caucuses, <laughs> made that race over literally before it began. That they're not going to get forgiven for me by me anytime <laughs> soon. My, so let's go to our who's ups. Tia, who is your
3: who's up? I'm going to say Mike Johnson. So he's my <laughs> <laughs> I love it. because heavy is the head that wears the crown, but he got government funding done. And so far, again, even Republicans who disagree with him are willing to give him some space to keep going. So he survived another week. And he wears the crown. So who's laughing bed, so. now? Greg Hoosier, who's up?
2: I'm going to say my who's up for the week is Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, who's making some moves in the legislature. After Governor Kemp backed off major changes to litigation rules this year, Jones made a power play move and said he's going to make sure that at least part of it will pass in the Senate. And now we've got word that he and Senate leaders are going to push through, not only are they push through a stalled measure to combat anti Semitism, they're going to add to it new penalties on those who distribute hate filled flyers. This will come into play. If he runs for governor in 2026.
0: And Bill, his or his up.
4: I I got a second, Greg Bluestein. Burt Jones, it's always been the Senate that's blocked the anti Semitism bill. Burt Jones now says he's taking it up. That's a powerful sign in the right direction. But because I'm uh, 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 doubling up on Bluestein, I also say Ace Hutchinson. He ran a principled campaign with dignity, um, he told the truth, and he got out with the same dignity that he exhibited throughout the campaign.
0: All right, I agree with that one. I also want to give the Iowa GOP my who's up. They needed to count those votes quickly and get a winner quickly, and they did. Even once the networks had called it, they actually had those votes uh, cast and counted very quickly as well. Very orderly process, democracy at work, networks need to let it uh, work the next time around before they call it, Um, but we'll we'll be back there in four years from now to see it all happen And
2: quite the contrast from 2020 in Iowa with the Democrats where you did not have an answer Mm. Uh, for days.
0: That's right. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta, or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again Monday for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.